Hi, it's Leon Dolan, and my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical, is out now and available everywhere. People Magazine chose it as an April pick of the month, one of the best this week, a hopeful take on commitment, they said, and an innovative story about marriage. Mmm, sounds juicy. The Marriage Sabbatical, out now, available everywhere. Hi, this is Julie. This is Liz. This is Sheila. This is Monica. This is Leanne. We are the Satellite Sisters. You are listening to Satellite Sisters To Go. We are the Satellite Sisters. Welcome to the show. This is Liz Dolan, and it is uh, September 11th, 2011. I'm joined today uh, by my sister Julie. That's it, Julie. Just you and me today. That's right, Liz, but that's okay. And I want to start, Liz, by it is September 11th, which obviously is such a huge day uh, nationally, internationally, but it's also your birthday. And so I did before the first things first, I want to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you. Did you get my card that I sent you? No, no. Did did you send me a card? Okay. I did. Well, I, I yes, I went to the store, bought a card, put a stamp on it mailed it to you, Liz, you know, very old school, mailed it to you. And uh, what I like about the card, Liz, is I think it's the most bizarre card I've ever seen. <laughs> because you're not really celebrating celebrating a momentous birthday. No, it's no. not. It's just, it's like a regular old birthday and Correct. you're in the middle of your life. And I just thought you might need a good laugh. That's uh, <laughs> Oh, now I'm frightened. No, but nobody, but it's... Well, you'll see it. Well, I'm sorry it didn't arrive in time, but now this, uh, I think the anticipation of it will be good uh, and carry you through the week. That's what, that's what I think. Now okay. that you know right. that I, the world's strangest card, <laughs> strangest birthday card is coming your way. It could be that it's here somewhere, so I'll conduct a search because <laughs> I, was, I was out of town all week. And I just got back Friday night. And I have to admit that when you get when I get back from out of town, I have a tendency, I'll grab whatever mail is in the mailbox, but I don't always go through it that carefully. Okay, so, well, this might be, it might be worth it, Liz, yeah. to just dig down, dig deep, uh, and see, see if it showed up. See if it's in the pile. There mm-hmm. is a, um, actually, a pile of this week's newspapers with my mail on my dining room table. So all is not lost, Julie. Maybe it's there. But uh, speaking of digging deep and finding something, we're going to do something special for you today that I don't believe we have ever done this. Uh, Julie, correct me if I'm wrong. So yesterday I was digging deep in a completely different pile. Our sister Leanne is working on a project uh, where she needed some of the old family photos that we all collected when we published our book together, Satellite Sisters on Common Senses. Which and we did a decade ago. It was that- a decade ago. Exactly. Right. And uh, Leon sort of thought I might have ended up with the photos somehow. Or maybe I at least had one or two particularly embarrassing group family photos is what she was going for here. Because <laughs> remember, she's in the sitcom business. So she wanted some very sitcom-y picture of all of us together. So as I was, you know, I looked through my old computer. I didn't, I didn't have anything on my hard drive. Then I looked through, because this is the, you know, Satellite Sisters HQ uh, is here in my home in Santa Monica, California. The, you know, Mudbath Productions slash Satellite Sisters uh, archive, as well as our TOC, our Transmission Operations Center, is all here. So I couldn't find And we, it. Hope, you, we hope someday to turn it into a museum. Isn't that true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, someday. 
It's starting to look like a museum, a very poorly organized museum. So uh, when I couldn't find it anywhere in the home, uh, I had a suspicion that it. I do have a lot of Satellite Sisters files downstairs in my storage unit. Files. In my building. Yes. Some, some things are actually filed, Julie. You would, be sho- you would be shocked. And in fact, in this case, in less than 10 minutes, I went down into my storage unit, and in less than 10 minutes, I put my hands on that file. I found the file of all of the original photos that we have in our book, and it's exactly what Leah needs for this project she's doing. So we have we have put together some kind of handoff later in the day where she's going to pick them up or send Sheila to come pick them up. That was undecided last night. But while I was looking That through- was impressive. That's impressive. Liz, archivist. Yes. Now, you can no. add that to your many titles uh, because that's really impressive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't suspect that of me. But see, there is this secret Virgo side to me that actually is better organized than I appear on the surface. And I think yesterday was proof of that. So while I was going through our files slash archives, I also found the CD... Now, this is where the comedy goes away. Um, I found the CD of the first show the Satellite Sisters did after September 11th, 2001. And uh, I was surprised to just find it there. And I picked it up and brought it upstairs. I thought, it's really interesting that I would stumble upon this on the 10th anniversary. And I hadn't listened to it. I'm I'm not sure I ever listened to it after we aired it. Uh, but, you know, you remember, Julie, the, for people that haven't been with the Satellite Sisters a long time, in those days, our show was a public radio show uh, syndicated by Public Radio International in the United States, but produced at WNYC, which is the largest public radio station in the U.S. and just a few blocks from the World Trade Center. So you were living in Bangkok, Thailand then, Julie, That's and you cool. remember what an elaborate production our radio show was in those days. Yeah, we actually had quite a, quite a staff of technicians, of producers, editors that helped us to put together that show. Now, obviously, we've streamlined things since then, Liz, right? And that we're yes, down yes. to we're down to some computers in closets mm-hmm. uh, and we're podcasting. But we did have a staff of people and you know the offices were located just as you said two two or three blocks from the World Trade where the World Trade Center building stood. Um, so that really you know was an area that was badly affected as well as the transmission tower for um, for the public radio station that um, that you know, sent our, our show out, that was on top of the World Trade Building. Right, so, right. So after, you know, after 9-11, like so many businesses, so many people that were just struggling to recover, we had to think about, we had to create some totally different way to produce our show. Right. And that morning, it just so happened the way we produced our show in those days was that we had a conference call every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. So it meant that that's why I was headed down to that neighborhood uh, when the attack started. And that's why our team of people, the producers and everybody that worked with us, they were either already there or on their way there for this, the one weekly meeting we had, which was Tuesday mornings. So um, this is a special salute to that team who helped us put together Satellite Sisters, who are the ones who physically put together Satellite Sisters uh, for several years, but who, with whom we shared 
this moment in time. And their names are Susan Sperling, Megan Ryan, Sarah Lemanchek, Dean Western, Rob Weisberg, and Jean Rayla. And the so for that week, the week of September 11th, we could not produce a show. Uh, the entire neighborhood was shut down. In fact, the building where we worked did not reopen for two months. But by the next week, we pulled ourselves together and put together a plan for a show. As you may recall, if you were in New York City, a lot of the phone lines still were not working. But the people at Sirius Radio loaned us a radio studio and an engineer. And we all met there. And, uh, and we did a show from there, those of us who were in New York City. So that was uh, Sheila and me, plus all of the people that I just mentioned, Susan and Megan and Sarah and Dean and Rob and Jean. And it was actually a great feeling to be able to go back to work and try to create something. But it was a mere, uh, let's see, like nine days after the attack. So from the Tuesday of the 11th, I think we did this on the following Thursday. And, Julie, you're, you were living in Bangkok then, and you in this show are at the studios of the BBC in Bangkok, right? That, that's correct. I mean, because, you know, with the time zone difference, uh, it was 9 o'clock in the evening when I was calling in to the conference call, and I didn't have the television on, so I knew nothing about the attacks in the U.S., and it was it was Susan, one of our producers, who told me who I just, you know, always will remember. She said, America is being attacked. And it seemed like the most incongruous thing that someone would say that. And that's how I, you know, heard the news of that. But, yes, I was I was would go to the studios in, um, in Bangkok at at the BBC. Well, at, well, really, Radio Free Asia at that time, Liz. That was even before pre-BBC time, and um, use their facilities to, you know, to, um, to, you know, to contribute to the show. So, and our show was always recorded and edited, and then it was sent out. But for this, now we had to learn how to do a live show because we didn't have the luxury, the technical or the the technical ability to be able to record a show, edit out all the, you know, the imperfections, and then and then, and then put the show out. So we had to, in that moment, do our first live show. So our instinct, especially with all of the lovely people we worked with that I mentioned at WNYC, was to do a show that was about what everyone was really doing that week after the attack, which was still continuing to reach out to friends and family and colleagues and, and just touch base and make sure that everyone was okay. So largely, uh, we're going to play the show for you now, and that's largely what you will hear is us sort of calling our friends or calling former guests who had been on the show who might have a unique perspective. Uh, some of the guests that you'll hear on the show, Dorothy Thomas is a human rights activist, longtime friend of Satellite Sisters, a mother of, you know, nine-month-old twins. We talked to Dorothy, a friend of mine, Ralph Green, who lives in Portland, Oregon, but whose family was in uh, New York and Washington. Then we connect with a friend of Leon's, um, who had lost her husband in an accident four years before, and so she had, Kathleen Boyagian is her name, a particular perspective on what that, um, what that grieving process is over the long one of term. My, one of my favorite interviews of all time was the things that Kathleen says on this show. Yeah. So you know, yeah. it's definitely worth listening to. 
and then later, Katie Kennedy is a, a peace and reconciliation expert. Again, someone we had spoken to previously on the show. She had done a lot of work in Northern Ireland uh, to try to um, in the peace process there, and she lived just a short distance from the Pentagon in Virginia. So she had her perspective. And there are other things in there, just sort of us sharing what's going through our minds. As I listened back to this this morning, uh, which I did, you can really hear um, the fragility that I think we were all feeling, everyone in the, in the country, all feeling just that short few days after being attacked, the feeling of vulnerability, uh, the fear, but also the need to be connected, the appreciation of the people in your life. So, um, so we're going to play that for you today. We have never done that before. We're just going to, we'll take a little break when Julie and I finish chatting here in a second. And then if you want to listen to our show, that was, uh, I guess we recorded this on probably September 19th, 2001. And it was a very different time in our lives. It was a very different time in the country. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like an appropriate thing to do today to remember all of the people who helped us in those days and how everyone in the country helped each other in those days. So, so that's what we're going to do today. And that- that's, that's right, because, you know, that's what we say about Satellite Sisters. You know, these are the people in your life that, you know, that you call when the best thing happens to you or when the worst thing happens to you. And I think after 9-11, we all reached out to our Satellite Sisters. And this is a good reminder. So uh, we hope you will enjoy this. Let us know what you think. You know, you can always find us on Facebook, at the Satellite Sisters. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sat Sisters. And you can email us at sisters at satellitesisters.com. We, we, it's been important to us. You know, this was obviously 10 years ago. And it strikes me that we're still saying the same thing about how important it is to be connected to each other and to, um, to just to reach out to your own Satellite Sisters. So that's it for today. Julie, thank you for the card that will arrive any day now. I'll, I look forward to that. Okay, Liz, you take care. All and, right. and for those of you just recognizing this day in your own special way we hope that you find um that the peace that um that we should all have on a day like today so that's it from us um we're the satellite sisters don't forget call your satellite sister from wnyc new york and mudbath productions in partnership with oregon public broadcasting and pri september 11th is my birthday i was headed to work in lower manhattan WNYC Radio, where we produce Satellite Sisters, is a short walk from the World Trade Center. I never got close. I was in the stalled subway tunnels further uptown for an hour, and by the time I came above ground, still one mile from my destination, one tower had already fallen. I could stand on the street and watch the other tower burn, but I didn't. I turned and I headed north on foot, just to get as far away as fast as I could. Because it was my birthday, I suppose many people would have called me anyway, but that morning it was more urgent. Because the cells were jammed, my phone never rang. It just collected message after message after message. My mother called. My sisters Sheila and Leon called. My brother Brendan called. Friends in Oregon and California called. A friend I was supposed to meet that day for a birthday lunch called four times, each time with a rising panic in her voice because she knew I worked downtown. I could not answer any of these calls. I dialed, I redialed, I speed dialed, 
and still couldn't get a call out. I was never in any danger, but I have never in my whole life wanted so much to talk to someone that I knew just to be able to say, I'm still here. Are you still here? Finally, I found a single quarter in my bag, stood in a long line at a payphone, and called my sister Sheila in Greenwich Village. I told her that I was fine, and she told me that she was fine, and we were both better off for knowing that. This is Liz Dolan, and this is a special Satellite Sisters. The facility where we usually produce our show is still closed, but everyone on our team is still here. My sister Sheila is with me here in a temporary studio in New York City. That's right, Liz. It's good to be here, and I'm really grateful that everybody on our team is still here. Since September 11th, everyone all over the world, whether they were ever in any danger or not, has spent a lot of time just calling their friends and family to say, where are you? Are you okay? And that's what we'll do today, too. Just check in with the extended Satellite Sisters family of guests and listeners and see if they're okay. First, my sisters, Julie and Bangkok. Are you there? Hi. Hi, Liz. How are you doing? I'm okay. <laughs> okay. Leon in Pasadena? I'm here. Happy to be here. Hi, sisters. Oh, it is good to hear your voice. And Monica, where are you anyway? Oh, Liz, I'm, I'm home in Portland today. Luckily, they canceled my business trip to Seattle. So I'm <laughs> here in Portland, great. which is great. So you are home on the phone. So, mm-hmm. so Sheila, uh, you and I were both in New York. Have you been amazed by how people have tried to reach out and connect with each other? I really have, Liz. And it, um, for the first day or so, that's pretty much all I could do, especially for that first day. I remember I called Leanne at right. 7 a.m. I woke her up, and you hadn't had your coffee yet, Leanne, and you didn't even know what had happened. I had no idea. I couldn't have imagined how bad it was. I, I, I just couldn't have imagined. And I just kind of called you to let you know that I was okay. And I tried to call Liz, and I couldn't get through, of course. I left a message. But after that, I had the strangest reaction, which was I just sort of I got under the covers. I lay in bed listening to the radio, and I kept the phone by my ear just so I could get some calls and make some calls. But living in lower Manhattan, I just didn't want to go out. Mm-hmm. I was afraid. Yeah. I was really afraid. So I stayed in bed. I made calls, and I retrieved calls, and that's what I did for the whole first day. Julie, you are so far away in Bangkok. How did that feel? You know, sometimes the world seems so small, and then other times it doesn't. To be an American, not in America, when this attack happened, I just felt really far away and very vulnerable. I was trying to dial all of you all the time and couldn't get through on the phones and the email didn't seem to work. I talked the next day with one of my friends who lives in Bangkok and she had called after hours and hours had gotten through to her son in Wyoming. He's 20 years old. And the son said, Mom, why are you calling me? Did you think debris from the World Trade Center was going to hit me in Wyoming? And she said, no, I'm calling you because I can. And that because I know you're okay, because if you weren't okay, I wouldn't be able to get to you. And it just really struck me how much people all over the world really needed to reach out and contact the people that they love, the people that they care about. And there was this very desperate time trying to do that when 
You couldn't reach people on the phone or email, and you certainly couldn't travel there. Right. Monica? Um, Yeah, I mean, I got a pretty hysterical call from Leanne because I think she was concerned that I was on a plane. I mean, right. she knows, you had been, you had I, been in Philadelphia. I thought you were on that Newark to San Francisco plane. Right, oh. which you know I'm oh. on a on a plane all the time. So that was really frightening. And then mom called and she was crying. And all she said was, "Liz was in the subway," and then she stopped talking. And she said, "But she came up at 14th Street, and it was just yeah, really a scary morning." Yeah, it took me um, like three hours to get through to mom. And, you know, she her message had just said, you know, Elizabeth, happy birthday. Where are you? Are you okay? Well, now that we've connected all the sisters, let's reach out to our extended Satellite Sisters family. Dorothy Thomas has been with us many times. She's a human rights activist, a MacArthur Fellow, a mother of nine-month-old twins, and a New Yorker. Dorothy, when I called you, your answering machine had a message on it saying, we are all fine here. Did you experience the same outpouring of people trying to find you and you trying to find your people? Absolutely. I mean, after the initial minute of total shock, uh, my first thought was to my husband, who had just left the house to go down and pick up our car on the West Side Highway, and to my sister, who works in the financial district. And I tried immediately to reach my husband on his cell phone with no effect and uh, called my sister at her office, and she picked up the phone and said... Oh, thank goodness. She had just seen the debris fly by by her window and that they were trying to figure out what, what to do and uh, that she was fine and she would um, be figuring out how to get out of there and she would call me back. And, and how long did that take for you to hear back from her? That must have been horrible. We were terrified, really. Her daughter also works downtown, and her son-in-law worked in the World Trade Center, so there was, although eventually they found out he was late to work and um, therefore was in the subway when the when the attacks occurred, uh, but there was a sort of a, a feeling of sus- suspended animation around here because on the one hand we were all just waiting to make sure that Ellie would get out, that our um, nieces and her daughters and, and son-in-law would get out. And at the same time, we were sort of frenetically calling uh, other people to find out how they were. And there were um, several other people that were in the neighborhood, one of whom was with my husband, who ended up coming here. And eventually, everybody gathered here, my sister, my nieces, uh, my sister's partner, my husband, his colleague that he was with, uh, and a very good friend of ours who lives in the building came upstairs, and we all uh, both watched what was unfolding on television. And... Uh, tried to reach other intimate family members and friends. You know, I had that same feeling of wanting to be seen face-to-face because I couldn't get anyone on the phone. I finally just turned up at a friend's apartment, too, like I needed to be in the same room with people that knew me. Did you find that as the hours passed, sort of your concern radiated out once you established that your closest friends and family were okay? It kind of grew from there, didn't it? It really did grow from there, and in some ways it grew in a way that was about checking in. You know, it wasn't necessarily people who were even in the neighborhood, never mind in the, in the state of New York. You know, it really resonated well beyond, um, beyond New York or Washington uh, into, you know, my sister lives, my other sister lives in Boston. I mean, you can imagine the sort of ripple effect of wanting to just 
touch base to somehow feel like it wasn't as bad as it seemed as mm-hmm. you could possibly imagine that it appeared to be and uh and I think the phone calling back and forth was really in some way about that about making connection about reassurance Right. That ripple effect is a really interesting way to think about it. Well, Dorothy, we're going to talk to you again at the end of the hour. Um, It's wonderful to hear your voice. We're glad you're safe. Thank you. And I wanted to say one thing, which is the ripple effect also was in a negative way in the sense that a very dear friend of ours who was with us that morning and spent time being concerned about our situation went home to find out that our own nephew was working in the World Trade Center and has since been found to be among the missing. Oh, dear. Well, we're very sorry for her. Thank you, Dorothy. We'll we'll talk to you in a few minutes. Okay. Thank you for calling me. I appreciate the chance to connect with you all. Leanne, now you were going to check in with nurse and filmmaker Claire Pankey. Claire Pankey was on Satellite Sisters last fall to talk about the documentary she made while working as a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City. As many of you know now, St. Vincent's is one of the closest hospitals to the World Trade Center site. I emailed Claire soon after the attack, and my email reached her in California, where she's been working as a traveling nurse lately, far away from family and friends and co-workers in Manhattan. Claire joins us by phone from Santa Barbara. Claire, was it a relief to be so far away from New York, or were you a little, I don't know, shaken not to be there? Paradoxically, it, it was, it's actually, I think, I've spoken to a couple of people who live in New York and aren't there, and, you know, on a real surface level, you're kind of glad you're not there, but my instinct is to run to the hospital and help. Right. That was, that was my first instinct, and it's actually very difficult to be so far away. That's my city, and that's uh, it's very personal. So it's, it's hard to be far away. When you first heard, who did you call? I watched the TV for a while in numbed silence like a lot of people in the country happened to be at the house of a friend but the first person I tried to call was my family in New York and I couldn't get through to almost anyone in New York and tried I have a pretty big family and tried various siblings and finally reached my sister's voicemail at work and just sort of one by one tried to call different family members and then eventually spread out to friends but um, who, who, who I knew who had people who in the World Trade Center, you kind of hesitatingly call. You're right. afraid to ask the question. You're afraid to find out the answer. And then on a number of cases, I reached the, the person who I was wondering if they were alive, answered the phone, and I just broke out in tears. The relief was so, so tremendous. As a nurse, have you been just... Um... How has your response been to seeing all your coworkers at St. Vincent's on the news and knowing that you can't be there? It's it's a mixed bag. I feel a, a sense of pride both in New York and in St. Vincent's and in what it is that I do, and and also really a sense of awe of, of the, the rescue workers, the, the firemen and the policemen who go into this and, and the people in the trauma center who do this every day. I don't work in the emergency room, but I think that, like a lot of them, I feel the sadness that there aren't more people to be caring for. Right. That that there aren't that a lot of those gurneys went unattended. That a lot of those wheelchairs were down there draped in in um, sheets that will never be sat in, and that's really difficult. But when you work in in the healthcare field, your instinct is to help. Your instinct is to 
to go and, and be there. And hopefully when I do get back to New York, I'll be able to serve in some way. Claire, thank you so much. We're glad you're safe. Thanks for checking in with us. Julie, you have Ralph Green that you're going to talk to? Yes, because I was. Ralph is one of our regular guests, and he's a frequent business traveler, and I wanted to check in with him. But I have to tell you, I'm also freaked out that Monica might have been traveling that day. This is the first I've heard of that. Yeah. Ralph, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Julie. Hey. What did you do, Ralph? <laughs> well, I think the first thing I did was try to get my breath back. I was on my way to the airport um, when I got a call, and, you know, it's... I mean, it's just such a freaky thing. You, you, I have family there, as as you guys may know. My sister's a New Yorker, and so that that was a struggle because you know we couldn't get through, and that was the first thing I tried to do after I kind of got my wits was to find her, and and then my parents live in D.C., so I was oh my tricked on both counts because I couldn't get through to Washington either. Um, turns out uh, I got through once. The phone rang and rang at my parents' house. My dad got so wigged out he went out and cut the grass. <laughs> He so what? He cut the grass? Yeah, he didn't He didn't know what to do, so he went outside and cut the grass and then answered the phone. So I was going crazy <laughs> trying to figure out what was going on. But eventually everybody turned up, and, uh, you know, it was it was just a, a strange thing. My, unfortunately, my sister happened to see one of the planes hit the building because they oh lived downtown. Gosh. So, you know, we're just trying to deal with that. I mean, you know, I guess we've all seen the video, but she unfortunately saw it live, so... When it, when you finally got through to your sister, what did you say to her? Well, I you know I knew that they live kind of in the area. They live on the Lower East Side, right by the Williamsburg Bridge. Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to make sure they were okay, and and they were. And then she you know told me in a sort of panic tone about actually seeing it. So that messed her up. She wanted to go. You know, my brother-in-law worked in Midtown. She wanted to go up and be with him. So they went up. Our conversation was just real short. It was, you know, you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Child's okay. Amir's okay. All right, see ya. And then they went up to 40-whatever, where HBO is, and, and just hung out there for most of the day. You know, it's funny how just saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, was all you needed to say to your family yeah. and friends. There's no question. I probably had 20 of those kind of short snippet, either conversation or emails in that in that time period, you know, just... You know, are you alive? Yes. Okay. Bye. You know that kind of thing, and being a traveler as as, a, as you guys are, it, it was difficult, also for friends and even just acquaintances, just to kind of get a hold of me, not knowing where I might be. You know, so I had all kinds of, you know, I wouldn't call them even friends, just folks that I know that just checked and wanted to see what part of the world I was in and to make sure that I was all right. Ralph, how are your parents? Uh, they're okay. My mom, I think, is is worried about the travel element of my job. I yeah. think she would probably rather I get another job. I think there are a lot of people rethinking their lives, rethinking yeah. the activities that they've just done on a daily basis for years and years now. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, most of the folks that that you know, you know my counterparts around here, the young parents, you know, everyone's kind of like I just go went home, hugged the children, and and wanted to just stay inside, and I have to admit I was doing some of the same thing. I didn't even go to work on Friday. I was emotionally drained by the end of the week, and I uh, just wanted to spend time with the children. Ralph, we are so glad that you are okay, that your family's okay, and best to your sister and everyone else. Well, Julie, thank you so much. Hope all's well with you guys. I, I know you have an East Coast, substantial East Coast zone like I do. And, yeah, and well, we're okay. Well That's good. the good news, Ralph. Good, 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 good. Well, thanks for checking on me. Bye, Ralph. Okay, so long.
I don't think anyone will forget what they did or who they called or what was said that day. We are really glad that we were able to talk today with Dorothy and Claire and Ralph, but we really want to hear from you, too. Who did you reach out to when you heard about the terrorist attack? And what conversations have you had since then that have really helped you through? Unfortunately, our regular email is not back up yet, but you can visit our website at SatelliteSisters.com and post a message on our forums, or you can email us directly at our temporary email address, SatelliteSisters, that's all one word, at Yahoo.com. Or please feel free to write us at Satellite Sisters, P.O. Box 3500-139-Sisters, Oregon, 97759. Or just call us, 1-877-913-1122. Coming up, we'll talk about some of the real conversations we've had with our children. And we'll continue calling out to our friends and guests from the past. Stay tuned. You're listening to Satellite Sisters on PRI, Public Radio International. This is Satellite Sisters. I'm Leanne Dolan. I got a lot of calls in the nights and days immediately following September 11th, too. Friends wanted to know if I was okay, if my sisters were okay, the rest of my family, and fortunately, we were. And then many of those calls would quickly turn to one topic. What did you tell your children? Even my friends without children wanted to know, as if there was some lesson in my simplified explanation, even for grown-ups. My friend Elizabeth had rushed to her daughter's school and took her home, not because she was in any danger, but because she wanted her family near her. My friend Ashley struggled with what to tell her sons because their father travels a lot and she didn't want to worry them. And my friend Danielle was undecided. Was her daughter at five really old enough to understand? My friend Diane called to check in that week too, and she's here with us today. Now we're still having some phone line problems with New York, but we're going to go ahead and give this conversation a shot. Diane and I both have children who are three and six years old. Diane joins Liz and me from her home in Pasadena. Thanks for being here, Diane. Thanks for hanging in with us. Happy to be here. Hi, Liz. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Diane. Leanne, let's start with you. What did you tell your children and when? You know what, Liz? I had to make some pretty quick decisions because we found out here in California about 7 a.m. And I had children that had to get to school, my six-year-old, by 8 And I thought there was a pretty good chance the school might even be closed. So I told them at the time that uh, there had been a terrible accident and some planes had run in to the World Trade Centers and a building in Washington. And the police were worried about everyone's safety. That's what I told them at the time. And then after school, I had a chance to really fill them in on a few more details. Diane, how did you handle this? Well, I, too found out the news before my daughter went to school, and um, my husband, Michael, actually had called from the airport um, from LAX, and he he had just been taken off his plane and told me the story that was going on. And he said, I'm coming home, you know, don't worry, I'll be home in in just a little bit. So um, 
I was very emotional on the phone with my husband. My kids saw this. They're up and awake and having breakfast two feet away from me. And um, so I did have to explain something right there and then to them because they knew something was very, very wrong. Being that they are very young and not having had time to discuss it with Michael, I simply said um, pretty much what Leon said, that there's been um, a terrible plane crash and a lot, a lot of people have been hurt. And we left it at that and tried to go about our day as normally as we could for the kids' sake. Leon, what happened after that? What was, you know, did you let your kids watch TV? Did they ask questions? What kind of questions did they ask? kind of regretting that I didn't do what Diane did <laughs> because <laughs> I went totally into the media sinkhole like a lot of people I just couldn't pull myself away from the TV and when they came home they did see the footage of the buildings and it was at that time that they started asking tougher questions one detail that I wanted to keep away from them was the fact that they were passenger planes that had gone into the buildings I told them some bad guys stole some planes and drove them into the buildings and when my six-year-old saw the big planes, he said, Mom, were there good people on those planes? Mm-hmm. And I had to say yes at that point. And then there were just a lot more questions from there. But I wanted him to understand the magnitude of the event. And I think I was wrong in retrospect. I just thought at the time that this would have long-term implications and that he was ready. I don't know why I thought that, because he's only six. And Diane, you handled that part of it differently? Yes, we actually don't allow the kids any television anyway, so it was not a big stretch for us to keep the kids out of the media loop. When I picked up Taylor from school, though, I don't know, I had <laughs> I had an urge to immediately comfort her and give her something more substantial than I had earlier. And Michael and I had spoken of just approaching this with much reverence, so to create the seriousness of it, but not to frighten Taylor. And we were just leaving Colby, our three-year-old, completely out of it, really. So we did tell her simply that there were several planes that crashed into buildings and that many, many people were hurt, and certainly many had died, and that they just needed our prayers and that Mommy and Daddy would be very, very sad, as many people all over the world would be, about these terrible crashes. So we left it at the generic crash, but again, trying to bring some reverence to um, the magnitude of it. Where will you both go with this now? I mean, the talking to your kids about good and evil, is that where you take it? What, what will you do, Leon? If it, because it, it's not going to go away as a story. You know, that's why I told him more in the beginning, because I don't think it will go away. And good and evil is kind of easy. That's something that they understand uh, sort of at this prime, you know, primeval level. What, the, what my son's struggling with is that idea that the bad guy killed himself. It's the suicide aspect of it. He'd never heard that word. He didn't understand that concept. So that's what he's really questioning. And, and that's just hard to explain. I think that's what all just of us the, are questioning. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's not alone. But, you know, I feel like I need to keep him informed. But I have kept him away from TV and newspapers since the first day. I think I learned a lesson there. Well, I, I'm sure this is a conversation we will have again on Satellite Sisters. Diane, thank you for being here today. 
We've been speaking with Diane Kersenkowski. What did you tell your children is just one of the many questions people have been asking each other in the past week. Sheila has been reading email from Satellite Sisters and her personal email, and people have been reaching out for all kinds of different answers. Sheila? Yes, Leanne. I'm here on the line with Julie, and we have some mail to share. Uh, The first letter came from a woman in New York who wrote, I called my brother in D.C., both to reassure him and to make sure that he was also okay. I called my grandmother and tried to call others. I found myself online every couple of hours, mostly replying to the dozens of emails asking if I was okay. My immediate personal reaction to this has been that I feel the need to be with people I care about almost all the time. I am normally someone who needs a lot of time alone, but suddenly my books, music, and my writing are less important right now than connecting with people and sharing our experiences. And I think that was a common feeling for most of us here. I also, as part of my personal email, have a friend in New York named Jocelyn who writes to all of her friends a question of the week. And her question was, how do you cope when things go wrong? Here are a couple letters. I felt numb and heavy, fragile. I am trying to stay connected to friends and family. I am trying not to shut down. And writing this even helps a little. I'm trying to look outward to the people who love me and hold that somewhere inside of me, which right now feels like the only safe place. Sheila, this is Julie. I I w- just really struck with how personal and intimate that email is. And email is usually such an impersonal and in some cases just, you know, a, like a business communication And I think it's been so important in the last couple of weeks for people as a way to reach out because practically some people have not been able to reach others on the phone. I know phones are still a problem in New York where you live. That's right. And sometimes people send personal messages to all of their friends. Like my daughter sent sort of an urgent personal email telling us that she loved us. She wishes everybody's okay and is everybody okay. We got another letter. A man wrote, here's what I did on Tuesday. I called a friend and asked him to come over. I got dressed. I walked to the window and cried every time I heard something flying overhead. I made toast for my friend. Being around my friend and seeing people I care about every day has helped me stay in reality and helped me stay in my body. And that's a familiar feeling to me this week is just trying to stay in your body, just trying to feel your feelings. This has been so surreal living here in New York. We got another letter. It was sent to our producer, Megan Ryan, from a friend of hers in Berlin. He wrote, I'm just writing to see if you're okay. I wanted to call you when I heard about what happened in New York, but realized I don't have your phone number. Hope you are all right, as far as anybody can be all right after days like this. Big hug from Jan. You know, I think it's really been a worldwide um, support network that has developed. I know it's ironic. I got an email from a friend in New York, sent me an email in Bangkok, and she wanted to know if I was okay. And when I read that, I was like, wait a minute, you're in the middle of it. The email should have come the other way. But I think people are really reaching out. It's not just the physical danger. It's the emotional danger. And it's a, it's a real need to just touch base with the people that are in your life. That's right, Julie. All in all, it's been an amazing week in terms of communication. And here's one last letter I thought was very uh, strong. Someone wrote, try to remember that there is always a solution. Try to remember that it's okay to ask for help. And try to call a real person, 
not an answering machine. Keep trying. I like that one a lot because I think real conversation can really help now. Leanne? Julie, that is so true about conversation. I have found over the last few weeks that I have been replaying certain conversations in my head over and over again to try to gain some perspective. And a conversation that we had last fall on Satellite Sisters with my friend Kathleen kept coming back to me. Kathleen Boyajian was a young mother with two boys when she got a phone call one day that changed her life. Her husband, Adele, a lineman for Southern California Edison, had been killed when the transformer he was working on blew up. That was four years ago. Kathleen joins us again at Satellite Sisters by phone from her home in Southern California. Kathleen, you were one of the first people I thought of on September 11th. What was your reaction to the fact that other people's husbands and wives and parents went to work that day and wouldn't be coming home? Well, initially I was in massive shock, and I started going back to that point in my life where I actually had lived that myself. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed, Leanne, that it wasn't actually reliving my own experience. And it's not just feeling sad for the people that I was watching on TV, but it was actually living their sadness. It was, I, because of my history, can relate so well to, you know, seeing your husband or wife off to work and then never to hear from them or see them ever again. And so I went in almost really into complete collapse for the pain and the shock that they were feeling and for the hours that have gone by and the days that have gone by. It's it's kind of like I can look into their soul and their hearts and know what's ahead of them. So it was agonizing. Kathleen, this is Julie. What did people say to you that was helpful in getting through some of this pain? I will reiterate something that I said the last time I was on your show, and that was that one nurse had told me, you know, Kathleen, you'll never get over it, but you will get through it. And anyone who's lost anyone that they've loved never wants to get over that person. But we do need to get through it. We need to live on. And the people that we have lost are counting on us to do that. And to all those people who have lost somebody, what I could say is to look at yourself in the mirror and say that you yourself, we ourselves, have value in this life and that we are who we are in large part by the people that have impacted us and the people that have gone before us and to keep their spirit alive in us, but to continue to value our lives and to find a way to develop a a new life. And it's going to take time, but to have the courage and the strength and to do it for yourself and for everyone else that loves us who are still here and count on us to be the people that they know. But before your husband's accident, Mm -hmm. you told us in the last conversation we had that you actually talked about his death, maybe because he was in a high-risk job, and that those conversations after his death helped you make it through. What do you make of all the phone calls from the plane and the buildings? What do you think their effect will be on the families long term? (laughs) I See, I found them to be the, the last great gifts that these people will have received from the people that died. And they're very um, heart-wrenching, of course, initially. But in time, 
and maybe right away, depending on the actual phone call, they will find that that person had the wherewithal to make the connection to say one more time that they love them, that they're, that they're, that they're going to be with them. It was just one last time that they wanted to connect with them and that that connection actually is representative to me of actually an eternal connection, that they will always be connected to that person. And they were very difficult to listen to those, uh, those conversations. But there are other conversations, though. Um, a young wife had lost her husband, and they were both 31. And the things he was telling her from the plane, that he will support her in whatever decisions that she makes in life, that he is with her, that is truly a gift. Those last 20 minutes of that life is just something that is, I think, will always be a treasure. Now, it's been four years since Adele's death. How long did it take you to move through some of the tremendous pain that you felt? Right. You know, as the, as time went on, as the weeks and the months, and then as the, you know, the first year, the second year um, went by, time does heal. It's also very much, though, I think the perspective of moving forward, of embracing all the emotion that is, going to be part of your life, whether it be pain, joy, sadness, whatever it is, is to just take it as as it comes to those people who are just beginning their process of grieving and, accept, and getting to hopefully some point of acceptance, just to let everyone know that you could be having a really fine day, fine week, fine month, and out of nowhere, a wave of sadness or grief can strike at any moment. And just for people who are around those people and for the people who are going through it, to know that that is very normal and just to let it ride it out. Emotion does build up and grieving is a lifelong process. And so I, along with all those other people who have families, are going to go through when the children graduate, when the children have their first maybe prom or, you know, when they get married. We're all going to want that special person there to be with us. And if we're missing them that day and crying for them that day, and it could be 20 years down the road, just to know that that's a normal process because it is a lifelong process, but it's a forward-moving process. And there's healing, definite healing. Kathleen, thank you for being here today and for sharing your perspective on this. We appreciate it. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Kathleen. Your conversation has really helped. I'm glad I could be of help. And good luck to everybody. Since our production office in New York has been closed, we will not be able to send out our email newsletter, Sister Log, this week. We love having our listeners on the show and want to keep that up. So for the next week, we'd like to know how everything that's happened may have brought you closer to your family or to the important people in your life. You can post a message on our forums at SatelliteSisters.com, or you can send an email to our temporary address, SatelliteSisters at Yahoo.com. That's SatelliteSisters, all one word at yahoo.com or write us at Satellite Sisters P.O. Box 3500-139 Sisters, Oregon 
1-877-913-9759 or call us at 1-877-913-1122. Coming up, we'll continue our conversations about connection and we'll start talking about how lives have been changed in the past two weeks and what we're going to do about it. You're listening to Satellite Sisters from PRI, Public Radio International. We're the Satellite Sisters. I'm Liz Dolan. Our next call is to Katie Kennedy. She's a consultant in the area of cross-cultural communication and conflict resolution. She's been with us on Satellite Sisters before to talk about her work, including time spent living in Northern Ireland. Katie now lives in Northern Virginia. Katie, how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me back on. I wish it were under happier circumstances. Right. It's nice to hear your voice. So how are things for you? Well, I'm recovering as everyone else is. I live about six miles from the Pentagon, uh, the main road that actually goes to the Pentagon. My street is off of it. And on September 11th, I was putting out my cat, and I had the TV on, as everyone else in the country did, and I heard a noise. And because I lived in in Belfast, um, my first thought that it was a bomb, and they were bombing National Airport. And almost as soon as I finished thinking that, my house literally shook. And the bricks on the patio, I mean, the cat started wailing. I mean, I saw them, the red bricks shake. And just for two or three seconds, it must be like an earthquake. I've never been in an earthquake. Um, But that's what it felt like. And, um, but, you know, a neighbor two two streets away uh, worked at the Defense Department and has five- and seven-year-old children, and she died. In fact, I just found that out today. And, um, you know, so this area is, is very much affected. Katie, this is Julie Dolan. I, under, I know your father is a fireman. He was a fireman. He died when I was 13, actually. He was a Boston fireman, and uh, so I really understand the firefighter culture. My uncle, his brother, was also a deputy chief in the Boston Fire Department. And he didn't die in, in uh, the course of fighting a fire, but he died of heart disease, of a massive coronary. And the firefighters, um, you know, lobbied their union for a heart bill. And so to this day, my mother gets a check every month. She's 81 years old because of that firefighter culture. So I know how they take care of their own. So I'm really heartbroken when I hear, you know, 300 firemen. Uh, and, you know, to this day, every time a siren goes by, I say a prayer, protect them, bless them. And I have a pang of anguish every time I see a fire engine. So I can only imagine, under the circumstances that what happened to the World Trade Center and the firefighter culture there in New York, we'll, we'll, just, we'll never be able to recover from this, but I just so admire them. Katie, your Ph.D. thesis topic was mourning in international politics. So does the time you spent like working on that topic and living in Belfast give you any perspective now that's personally helpful to you in processing everything that's going on? Well, I think I think it is. Um, you know, I know what it's like to live in a culture that has security forces and armed personnel in the street. I know what it feels like to be searched, to have my privacy, um, you know, invaded so to speak you know phone Mm -hmm. lines are tapped and 
And those are the kinds of things that are being talked about, you know, perhaps some changes that our own country might see. So I do know what it's like to live in that kind of ambiguity and to live um, with the fear of not quite knowing what's what's going to happen. I, you know, my work in Northern Ireland has been over the course of 20 years, and when I first lived there, it was right after the hunger strikes. And so, you know, the culture of fear, I know, what's, I know what that is like. And so because I've been through it before, in some ways it is easier. Um, I yeah. do know what it's like. But it, it also, because of my work and my time there and my research about how grief, if it's not resolved, um, you know, really, really harms both people and a society. And my greatest concern right now for our own country is that if people either rush the grief or deny the grief, um, you know, we're going to have ramifications on every level of our society because grief is obligatory, it's mandatory, we cannot escape it. How will we know if we've rushed the grief? Well, that's a hard question to answer because individuals, you know, even individuals in a family when, you you know, you're, you have a death of a parent or a spouse or something, people grieve differently. So we're going to be all doing it at a different time. And some people are going to be saying, you know, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. We finished. And, you know, we've got to get back to normal. And other people, you know, it's not going to be as easy to get back to normal. One of the things that I observed and found from my research and really saw in people in Northern Ireland, that people who were vulnerable during a bomb experience or, you know, a threat of terrorism, they found it much more difficult to move on. So I'm thinking of people in our own country if, you know, they had a a loved one who was seriously ill or if they had financial problems. If they were feeling vulnerable in any way, they're going to have difficulty, you know, getting back to normal or allowing themselves to go through this grieving process. So it's going to be hard to know. Um, But we we just really, really need to listen to each other and, and not to rush each other. Katie, the people that you knew in Belfast, the friends, the people that you lived and worked with, how did they manage the fear and the, and the, the ambiguities, you say? I, I've felt so much uncertainty since September 11th. You know, how, how did they personally put that somewhere? Well, I mean, doing the things that, you know, so many of our leaders have been urging us to do, to, you know, get, to get back to your routine. You know, people celebrate birthdays and get married and go to school and you know, doing doing our daily activities, you know, going to a baseball game or um, over there it would be um, a soccer game. You know, so right. I think it's really important to do that. And also humor in the Northern Ireland culture, in both the Protestant and Catholic communities, humor is, is really a gift. And I really believe that, you know, that has saved the sanity and the soul of that country. Well. Wow. There's a slightly optimistic note uh, on which we can close this conversation. Thanks, Katie. It's really nice just to know you are safe. Well, thank you, Satellite Sisters, for doing your good work. Katie, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. We're going to bring our conversation back around now to where we started with human rights activist Dorothy Thomas and my sisters Leanne in California and Julie in Bangkok. Dorothy, when you think about all of the recent events, how has the way you think about the future changed? Has it has it changed the way you think about the future? Well, I think I'm only now beginning to think about the future. I think these events have been so compelling in the immediate sense that 
it's been hard for me to even look up over the horizon to, you know, plan next week, uh, never mind plan sort of the rest of my life, uh, which I'm not very good at in the first place. Um, but I think the thing that has struck me the most is thinking about my children. As you know, I have two nine-month-old children, and it's just coming home to me that the world that they are going to grow up in after what happened last Tuesday is different than the world that I thought they were going to grow up in, and in many ways different than the one I grew up in myself. Exactly what those differences are going to be, I'm not really totally sure, and they may not all be bad ones, but I'm I'm very certain that it is a different uh, feeling that I have as an adult living in this country than I had before, and maybe it's just that illusions that I had have now been stripped away. But I, I do think my children are going to experience an environment, a worldview uh, that is distinctly different than mine um, and uh, than the one that I had anticipated uh, last week mm-hmm. or before last week. Do you have any other experiences in your life that give you some perspective on how to move forward personally, how to how to deal with all of this? Well, I think it's taken me a while to acknowledge this to myself and to my family, but I think in a lot of ways right now, I feel a lot of fear uh, mm-hmm. and a fair amount of anxiety. I think in some ways as a human rights activist and for any uh, number of other reasons, I haven't always been very able to face those fears in myself or to acknowledge them. But after a few days here, I've really had to come to terms with the fact that aside from a lot of other things I feel, I also feel a considerable amount of fear for me and, and for my loved ones. And as I started to acknowledge that to myself and and recognize it, I began to think about a time in my life where I felt a similar kind of fear or other times in my life where I have felt it. And the one that really came to mind was when I graduated from college, uh, a very good friend of mine was raped and murdered uh, about three or four days after we graduated. And it was something so unexpected, so unimaginable, so brutal uh, and so terrifying that I spent quite a long time in the summer uh, after that occurred finding it very difficult to figure out how to re-engage with the world and even to just get myself to walk out of my apartment in the evening and walk over to a friend of mine's house nearby. I was just terrified and my sense of personal safety was fundamentally violated and and shaken and i i feel many of the same things now that i felt then uh and at the same time i recognized that between then and now i became a women's human rights activist that that my response to that almost paralyzing fear was ultimately to decide to fight against the things that caused that fear and to stand up for what I believed in in terms of the human rights of women and in terms of the human rights of people more generally. Uh, but it, it took me a while to find that path. I was an English major. you know, It wasn't what one would have anticipated that I was going to do with my life. Uh, and that single event changed the course of my life. Um, but I think it changed it out of choice. It didn't change it out of happenstance. In other words, I think I still to this day uh, 
make the choice to become engaged, to be active, to return to what I care about, to fight for what I value, rather than to shut myself down and shut myself in out of fear. Dorothy, this is Julie. You have people that count on you now, your family, your associates. How do you think that changes your reaction to this gripping fear? In many ways, they change my reaction in the sense that that fact of community, you know, even even the community that we have on this telephone conversation is a thing that makes me pull myself up out of that feeling of retreat, of of being overwhelmed, uh, of being powerless, into one that says, I, I have meaning in my life. I have a community of people in my own home, in my own family, in my own block, uh, in my own country, in the world that I can connect to that don't want this to be the last word, that want to engage, continue to engage the world and engage it in transformative and positive ways. And I, I feel that possibility in the fact that my community persists, uh, however threatened we might feel at the moment. And even though people who are in that community have themselves suffered very grievous loss in the last week and are going to require a great deal of support in order to recover. When you blow out the candles on your twins' first birthday cake, (laughs) what will you wish for? I think I would wish that they find over time in themselves what it is that they deeply believe in, whatever it may be. And it may not be what I believe in. It may be utterly different than I believe what I believe in. But that they are able in their lives to find that thing or those things in, in themselves that they value and to build on those values out into the world and that they are willing to take the risks associated with that, that they are willing to, in that sense, be themselves in circumstances where it may not always be easy, where the road may not always be clear, where the support may not always be available. If that happens to them in the same way that it happened to me, in whatever way it happens to them, I think I would feel very, very, very uh, fortunate, particularly given that they, however unconsciously, witnessed an event that I think could be devastating to one's sense of hope and of possibility and of uh, fundamental values. Dorothy, thank you so much for being in on our conversation today. Uh, It's really nice to end on a note of community and optimism and finding our values. Thanks. My pleasure. As always, I I much appreciate your guys reaching out to me. It it really makes a difference in my life and uh, sends me back to my own sisters in fuller appreciation. (laughs) So thanks again. Thank you. Many things are different about today's show and today's world, but we'd like to do one thing just the way we usually do, conclude with a to-do list, maybe in the spirit of what Dorothy just said to us, of finding what we really believe in. Uh, Sheila, in that spirit, what's on your to-do list this week? Well, Liz, after I found out that my daughter was okay and my immediate family was all right and my friends were okay... My next thought 
was, um, are the, all the children that I know in the New York City public school system, and I know hundreds of them now, are they okay? Um, and the good news is uh, that all of the kids that I taught formally are okay. Um, all of the children that I worked with in my original school, which was just blocks away from the World Trade Center, were brought to safety, and that's good news. Um, not only those children, but close to 8,000 school children in New York City were evacuated and brought to safety. That's a good news. I'm still waiting to hear um, if all the family members of those children are okay. And the reason I know that we're still waiting is um, I couldn't get through to the principals on the phone when I tried to reach them. So when I went down in person to volunteer, um, I ran into one of the principals of the school where I worked. And um, she told me about a young girl, you know, that we're still waiting to hear about. Um, her father worked at the World Trade Center. And it occurred to me that, you know, this is something that I know how to do. I know how to be with kids. And so that's on my to-do list, uh, to put more volunteer time into my old school, which now houses four New York City public schools, and sort of help out in that way. Um, that's what I can do. It sounds like it just completely reconnected you to that community that is a part of your life. That's right. You know, I think this whole show today has really brought the sense of community and the sense of connection to mind. And we really want to keep the conversation going online and on the air because we know we're the fortunate ones. We can continue. And we are really grateful that everybody who works for Satellite Sisters in New York City and around the world is okay. And we really thank them for putting in their help today and every week. Susan Sperling... Megan Ryan, Sarah Lemanchek, Dean Western, Rob Weisberg, Jean Rayla, John Keefe, and Dean Capello. We have special thanks this week to all who helped us rise above the technical challenge here in New York City. Sirius Radio in New York loaned us a studio and an engineer, John Creeley. Thank you, John. We got production help from Oregon Public Broadcasting, KPCC, KCRW, and the BBC in Bangkok. We also salute our friends and co-workers at WNYC Radio in New York. That's our show for this week. We're glad we could be here. Bye, Jewel. Bye, Liz. Bye, Leanne. Bye, Liz. Bye, Monica. Bye. See you guys later. Bye, Leanne. Bye, Bye. Sheila. Bye-bye, everybody. Don't forget, call your satellite sister. 